0: Time to get into the Word. We've been going through various mini-series to help encourage you during this difficult time. And as we have gone through eschatology and we've made some observations concerning the world around us in the uh, eschatology timeline and some concerns that we have raised uh, concerning where we are at in that timeline, I feel it's necessary this morning change gears a little bit as we make our way back to the gospel of luke eventually to talk about something that we need to be reminded of today for many different reasons and that is that you and i in christ jesus are citizens of heaven do we understand that that we are citizens of heaven that you and i as christians are subjects of the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, I believe those terms can be used interchangeably one, with the, one for the other, is of course a large portion of the understandings of the four Gospels. The three synoptics and the Gospel of John. We here in America have, I think, distanced ourselves from the true understanding of what it means to be a subject within the kingdom of God. And of course, today, many Christians are struggling because Christians, pastors and teachers and Christian leaders are saying that we as Christians truly cannot be faithful to the kingdom of God if we hold to nationalism and we love our country and we get involved politically. I do not believe just because one loves the United States of America or one gets involved politically here in the United States of America that it's automatically idolatry. I think that's a leap, and I think that's truly evaluating a person's heart beyond their personal capability of doing so. I believe that we can love the United States of America and be faithful to the idea that we are subjects of the kingdom of God. Now, we have to also understand that being a subject of the kingdom of God means that we do have a higher allegiance. And as we go through this world, if the government were to require us to do something unbiblical that would move contrary to our walk with the Lord or direction of Scripture, then we would have to resist that, direct, that command, that law, peacefully and also be willing to suffer the consequences of doing so. But that being said, you and I need to understand that from the very moment that John the Baptist and even Jesus himself came on the scene, it was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean today? And what does it mean for you and I? And that's what I would like to explore over the next couple of weeks, making our way back to the Gospels. Let us begin in Matthew chapter 6, if you will. And of course, in Matthew chapter 6, we are in the midst of one of the, fa- the most famous sermons ever given. We know it as the Sermon of the Mount, a sermon given by none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. And notice that in his instructions to his followers and his disciples, teaching them to pray, he begins by saying, In verse 9 of chapter 6, in this manner, therefore, pray Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we were reading that, how many of you were tempted to start saying that out loud? Yeah, well, don't. No, I'm just kidding. We've been taught to pray this. We know these words by heart. But what was Jesus referring to when he says, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven? When Paul the Apostle began his missionary journey to the Gentile world, he began to show those Gentiles who have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ that they were now uh, part of something much larger than themselves. They were part of something that God was doing. And in Philippians, he reminds them that they were truly citizens of heaven. For them, that would have had a very, very unique understanding, much different than our understanding today. In the Roman Empire, the only two ways that you could become a citizen was number one, by being born within the empire to citizens of the empire, or number two, purchasing your citizenship. For those who were taken in captivity from different uh, areas or regions that the empire uh, conquered, for them to become Roman citizens, it was next to impossible. Citizenship was very, very important in 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 those days, because of the control that the Roman Empire had upon the known world, if you remember in the Book of Acts, Paul discusses his citizenship and how he was wrongly judged and beaten for a crime and not never given a proper trial as a Roman citizen. And as a result, he was going to bring that to their attention. And then Paul even gets into a, conver- a conversation with one who actually had to buy his. Roman citizenship, and Paul says, mine was born, I was born of it naturally. Citizenship was very, very important. And many of these regions, unfortunately, had been conquered several times, and so their allegiance to various emperors was known, meaning at one time it was the Medes and the Persians, the next time it was the Greek Greek Empire, the next time it was the Roman Empire, etc., And so their citizenship continuously changed. Where Israel initially was meant to be governed by God independently, of course they then asked for a king, they were given King Saul, and we know the disaster that that was. Eventually God selected a man after his own heart, David. And the the nation of Israel really came to their zenith uh, under the reign of King David. But the overall hope for the people of Israel was that one day God would govern them on this earth, reign over them personally, and bring all of the nations that had plagued them to judgment, but also restore the nation of Israel to the glory in which they once occupied under king david because as you know after david the nation of israel and and judah began to slip into this pit of you know decay and immorality and so their hope was that one day their messiah would come and that messiah would lead them back to the glory days of david reigning from jerusalem bringing the nations around them that had plagued them and had bothered them and had been burdensome to them under the weight of judgment. And of course, when John the Baptist then came on the scene and began to proclaim that the kingdom of God was at hand, calling the nation of Israel to repentance, to return back to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, many felt that this was going to precede the coming of the Messiah that would overthrow the oppression of the Roman bondage that they were currently under. And that finally, the king would be established there in Jerusalem and reign and bring the nation of Israel back to their pinnacle and bring the Roman Empire under the subjection of judgment. And throughout the Old Testament, we have various passages that whisper these things of the coming Messiah and His reign and the uh, kingdom of God being established on this earth. But as things progressed in the life of Jesus Christ, they quickly began to know and to understand that the reign in which He was advocating was not the same that they had in mind it was obvious that Jesus had a different goal or mission in mind. And this goal and mission had to do with the rain in the person's heart. It had to do with the uh, release, not from the bondages of Rome, but from the bondages of sin. And I believe that this is what motivated the crowds around Pilate at that moment that they had that opportunity to choose between Jesus and, Bar- and uh, uh, Barabbas. And as a result, they chose Barabbas because he, they believed that he was a quicker means to the ends in which they were looking forward to. But let us not miss this for a moment, that the kingdom of God came as Jesus Christ himself proclaimed, the first thing that Mark records for us is the fact that after John the Baptist had been arrested, the words from Jesus was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And though the king was inaugurated at this moment and validated through the death and resurrection in which he experienced, the kingdom of God has already begun and is already here. And each and every one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ are part of that kingdom, Jew or Gentile alike. But what does that mean? What does that mean as a Christian? That I am part of the kingdom of God, that I am a subject to our King and our Lord and Savior. What does that mean that I have a higher allegiance even to the national allegiance in which I hold here physically on this earth? And that's what we're going to explore as we move forward. However, this morning I wanted to let each and every one of you know that throughout church history, the idea and the understanding of being a participant, being a a subject, being one who is in citizenship to heaven, meant a great deal to the manner in which they saw the world around them. It changed everything. It allowed for that biblical worldview. And the reason I believe so many Christians today have lost their biblical worldview is due to the fact that they've lost the understanding that they are a member of the kingdom of God, that they are an individual that has been translated out of this world into the kingdom of God. In which God has established. And as I said, Paul wrote these words to the Philippian church when he said, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies that we may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. He went on to say in Ephesians when he wrote this Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fit together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also have been are being, excuse me, built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. There are some scholars who want to delineate a difference between the term kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. I don't think that is necessary. For Matthew is the one that coined the phrase the kingdom of heaven. And it's not unusual for a Jewish person to be, uh, of course, reverent when it came to using the name of God. In fact, Matthew does use the term kingdom of God four times within his gospel. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, I believe, are synonymous with one another. And as we moved forward, we see that Jesus himself said this in Mark 1, 14 and 15. And as John was put into prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of god is at hand repent and believe in the gospel again i'm very concerned that in our current climate with the choices that are on the table and the direction that our current nation is going and will go under the leadership of some that we feel that as christians that we cannot be faithful to the kingdom of God and also interact in the national uh, discussions that are around us. And I believe that to be false. Of course, first and foremost, our responsibility is to God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I also disagree with those who say, that if we hold or support a political candidate over another, that we are damaging the gospel in any way, shape, or form. I would think damaging the gospel would be more prevalent if we supported a candidate that doesn't hold to any biblical values whatsoever. But that's not the main reason that we're looking at our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. It's just a point that I wanted to throw out there just because you know, we've been so controversial up to this point, I didn't want to stop now. (sighs) But our citizenship in heaven should have a direct impact upon our personal life and practical life here and now. When the Jewish people talked about the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, they used language that automatically made three assumptions. And I actually added a fourth. The assumptions were that the kingdom of God was going to be an everlasting kingdom. It was something that once established would never fail. It would never fall. It would always continue in an everlasting format. Number two, its presence and tangible aspects in the lives of the ancient Israelites, meaning that they lived in accordance with their understanding of the kingdom of God, even though at that time it had not yet physically been realized. That they were still waiting in anticipation for it. Yet it had a direct effect on the manner in which they lived their lives. And of course, they didn't do it perfectly, did they? They got into all kinds of trouble. But because of their belief that God would once reign, they conducted their lives accordingly. And number three, the belief in a future appearance of a superior and more comprehensive kingdom of God led them to live with a future perspective. Meaning they just didn't simply look at the moment and determine and conclude all of the reality that they were experiencing just from the microcosm of that moment, they looked to the future. So what that means for you and I today is that even though things may look bleak and dark and, and overwhelming, it is one snapshot, it is one frame in the entire movie, and we know how it ends, don't we? And I think it's been said this way, we win, right? And so, though it may be bleak at this moment, we know that the ending is one that is very encouraging and very strong. I think of Job. Well, not very often, because I'm often afraid that if I read Job, God's going to let me go through it. But you think of Job, day by day in his life. It would have been so easy to curse God, wouldn't it? Every circumstance that surrounded him would have undoubtedly indicated to him that god wasn't with him that god didn't care about him and certainly that god didn't love him and yet job continued on in faith and job didn't even know how it was going to end you know we do right we've read job and said oh well job it it all turns out glorious for you in the end job would just look at us i didn't know that when i was going through the sores and the dogs were licking the wounds and so forth and i was on the ash heap and so forth i didn't know how it was going to turn out we have the blessing of knowing how it turns out don't we and if job did it we can do it too having faith and trust in our god during the most bleak and difficult times that this world may pose As we've often said, this world is the worst it's ever going to get for us, isn't it, as Christians? It's only going to get better. But for those who don't know the Lord, unfortunately, this is the best it's going to be for them. And it's not going to get any better. But there's a fourth dynamic. The Israelites in the anticipation of the arrival of the kingdom of God under their Messiah, knew that it was going to be a time of judgment and restoration. They knew it was going to be a time of judgment for the nations around them who have hurt them in their history. But it was also going to be a time of restoration for they themselves. And I think that it is interesting that when we look at all of these in conjunction with the coming of Jesus Christ and the working in our personal life, we can see all four of these elements personally applied in our lives in our conversion to Jesus Christ and our following of Him. The old life has been judged and now God is working in us and restoring us, bringing us back to where we should be before the fall of man in that sanctification process that unfortunately will not conclude and end while we're here, right? We would love to have those parties, I've arrived, (laughs) I'm sanctified, I'm perfect. Just ask everybody around me, you know, one day you'll get there too. just keep looking up. You know, I'd I'd love to say that that's practical and that it's going to happen for you and I. But we know that once we are with the Lord, we are going to be like the Lord for all eternity in the sense that we're going to be back to that state of perfection. Some have thought that we are going to become gods ourselves. I hate to burst your bubble, but that's not going to happen. There's only one God, right? But we'll be back to that perfected state once again so there's a judgment there's a restoration there's an understanding that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom which allows me to look at this world in a temporary light doesn't it if i didn't have a concept of eternity in a positive sense there is no way that i would live this world live in this world in a sacrificial manner because this would be all that there is right Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die would probably be the mandate that most would adopt. But in the understanding that there is eternal life, I can sacrifice my life now. I can lay myself before Christ as a living sacrifice, allowing Him to do in and through me all that He desires to do. As Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. I don't need to any longer be worried about what man can do to me but now i'm concerned of what god can do and as a christian my hope and desire is to hear those words rendered well done thou good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your lord that's what you desire to hear being part of the kingdom of god today as a christian It directly affects the manner in which I live my life, the decisions I make, the standard of morality that I hold to. All of those are impacted by the fact that I am part of the kingdom of God. And as I had said, the belief in a future appearance of a superior and more comprehensive kingdom gives me the ability again to understand that in this moment, at this time, we can have a temporal perspective and know that there is an eternal weight of glory waiting for us. That moment that Jesus Christ broke the veil as He was announced by the star that shined throughout the land of Israel, it was at that moment that the kingdom of God once again was being established here on this earth. Now, let us understand that through the the life of Jesus, we find various references where he states very clearly that the gospel and the kingdom go hand in hand. The last time you shared the gospel message with someone who didn't believe, did you also follow that up with the understanding of the kingdom of God? It's an interesting question because in our evangelism, we often don't include both. We include the gospel, but we don't talk about the kingdom of God that, of course, we become participants in, citizens in, of once we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But what's interesting to me is that during the life of Christ, when he would heal the sick, raise the dead, when he would cast out demons, he would often say it's demonstrating that the kingdom of God is near. It showed and demonstrated that he had authority over the darkness that ruled this world. And of course, you know that in the Jewish tradition, those who were afflicted with uh, such as you know, paralysis and other life-threatening diseases were often thought, of having sinned in some way. And it's understandable why they thought that because when you go back and consider the national covenant that God made with Israel during that time, Deuteronomy 28 and 29, by the time Jesus had come, they took a national application and began to apply it individually. So someone was rich, they would automatically think that that person was in God's favor, because they were being blessed materially. This is why, very interesting, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked, how may I be saved? And Jesus told him, and he went away because he couldn't do what God had asked him to do. The very next question that the disciples asked was, well, if he can't be saved, then who can be saved? Meaning that, well, isn't he already in God's favor? He's rich. He's been blessed materially. Uh, He has to be of God's favor, and you're turning him away, and he's unwilling to part with that. If he can't be saved, then how can anybody else? And of course, Jesus answers that question. That with man, it's impossible. But through God, all things are possible. But on the other hand... Remember, when they brought the individuals to him, specifically, I believe, the one that they lowered through the roof, they said something very interesting to Jesus. Who has sinned, this person or their family, right? All indicating this idea that their personal conditions were testimonies of their favor or unfavor uh, standing with God. And that's not the case at all, is it? But when Jesus came and he began to heal the sick and he began to raise the dead and he began to cast out demons, it showed and demonstrated that he was taking back the authority relinquished at the time of the garden and the fall at the garden where man had dominion, we sinned, we gave that dominion to Satan. Jesus came and he says, I am now taking it back. How do we know that? Well, Jesus said very clearly that that the devil has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to destroy the works of the devil. That was a great place for an amen. You totally blew it. Totally blew it. And as a result, the kingdom of God was now being seen in a way that they've never seen it before. And throughout the ministry of Jesus when explaining the kingdom of God, notice how often he said, and this parallel, and this, I'm sorry, parable, gives us insight and understanding to the kingdom of God. For he says very clearly, the kingdom of God is like, and then you finish the sentence. And he wanted to reveal to the simple, the ideas and the concepts of the kingdom of God, but hid them from the religious leaders and those who felt they were wise in their own sight. The purpose of parables. And he began to describe the kingdom over and over and over again. Of course, from a Jewish perspective, because he was speaking to Jewish people. But all of those truths are relevant for you and I today in the sense that the kingdom of God is described accurately in and through those parables in which Jesus gave. And he was showing them and demonstrating for them over and over and over again what the kingdom of God is like. But let us not forget Jesus himself. Jesus himself demonstrated as God stepped out of heaven and the person of Christ showed us that our God was not going to live, leave His creation to destruction, that He Himself was personally going to atone and redeem and restore that creation once again. And this is where we see the aspect of judgment, right? For those who resisted Christ, that was their only means of salvation, and they fell under the condemnation of judgment for their rejection. But for those individuals who came to him, they were restored. All of the attributes that the Jewish people were hoping to see in the establishment of the kingdom were, was right there in the person of Jesus Christ. Living in the manner he did showed and demonstrated that he knew what eternity had to offer and was willing to lay himself down as a sacrifice on behalf of all of creation. It moved him to say those words, not my will be done, but your will be done. And in the life of Jesus Christ, you and I have the perfect example of one who Paul would call an ambassador for Jesus Christ. This is in whom we are representing to all of the world around us. This person, when the disciples said, let us see God, he says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Let us remember the compassion that Christ had, the love that Christ had. But he was also fierce, wasn't he? Turning over the money tables, rebuking the religious leaders in the manner in which he did. He stood up for true righteousness, true peace, true repentance, true faith. And as a result, we saw that the kingdom of heaven was not offered solely to those individuals who appeared to have warranted, but all who would come to his Father's table. Amazing. I believe the disciples, well, to say it in a polite way, during the Gospels and the book of Acts, well, sometimes they were confused. And I think that's saying politely. And you know what? If I would have been there right there with them, I would be confused as they were. But let us remember that as we make our way to Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is interesting to me that the one question that they ask him, and that is recorded by Luke for us in the the, uh, book of Acts, was this. And it starts in chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time... Restore the kingdom to Israel. Now remember, these are the same individuals that fought over who was going to sit at his right hand. And even when they didn't get their way, they brought in an intermediary, a mediator for them. Somebody that they believed that Jesus just couldn't refuse. Their mom. And say, which one of my sons will you allow to sit at your right hand? One at your right, one at your left. That, that's underhanded, bringing in mom, isn't it? You know, that's, these guys, you know, uh, sometimes they kill me. Um, but here at this point, they are still looking for the physical establishment of the kingdom of God, which will not take place until his second coming in the book of Revelation chapter 20, where he physically reigns from Jerusalem during the time of the millennial kingdom. So what does he say to them? He says to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He didn't have the heart to tell him that it would be over 2,000 years before that would occur. But he did give them this promise, that when I leave, the Father will send the Spirit to give you that power needed to be witnesses for me. And that is the promise that you and I continue under today. As we wait for the establishment of his physical kingdom, let us not understand or misunderstand, I should say, for a moment, we are part of the kingdom of God today in Christ. And as we wait for his return, we have all the blessings that are found in the heavenly places in and through the one and only mediator, Jesus Christ. There you go. But notice that Philip, when he was talking, he said to one, he said in Acts 8, 12, he said, but when they believed, Philip, as he preached things concerning the kingdom of God, In the name of Jesus, both men and women were baptized. And Paul in Acts 19, when he went into the synagogues and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. In Peter's last letter to us as believers, he wrote these words, and I'd like to read them to you if I may. He says in 2 Peter 1, 5-11, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, self-control to preservation, to preservation godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior jesus christ where peter directly attributes the kingdom of god to the kingdom of our lord and Savior jesus christ affirming his deity and saying that jesus is god for you and i today let us understand that being a subject a citizen of the kingdom of heaven means that we have moved from death to life darkness to light from being wrecked to being restored and a key to understanding the kingdom of god is understanding the words in which jesus used to bring this reality to us the greek word bastilia or merket in the hebrew means one that is to rule reign and have dominion Remember that we as individuals have been bought and paid for, not with silver and gold, but by the precious blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we are no longer our own. We now serve Him. We are doulos, you know. We're servants of our King. And some would go as far as to say slaves to our King. That's why as a Christian, not only is He our Savior, But we can never abandon the idea that He is also our Lord. And so next week we begin our look at the kingdom of heaven together. And we'll begin in Matthew chapter 5 and we'll hear these words from our Lord Himself. And seeing the multitudes, He went up on the mountain and He was seated with His disciples. And His disciples came to Him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall seek God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The door of the kingdom of heaven is open to all who will come. The door is forgiveness. The key to that forgiveness is repenting and believing on Jesus Christ for your salvation. And as Jesus says, He'll cast no one away. He'll turn no one out who will come to Him. And demonstrated that throughout His life here on this earth. And regardless of what happens here and now, and what happens on November 3rd, do you realize that nothing is going to change the fact that we are still citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Nothing at all. And that part of being a subject of the kingdom of God is that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ.